Today I have with me Dr. Cecilia Hayes, who is a Senior Research Fellow of Theoretical Life Sciences and Professor of Psychology at Oxford University. And she is also the author of the book, Cognitive Gadgets, The Cultural Evolution of Thinking. Dr. Hayes, welcome to Race Cogitons. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Delighted to have you here. So Dr. Hayes, could you please uh, give a broad overview of what this book, Cognitive Gadgets, is about and your work more generally? Okay, Cognitive Gadgets is about the way that our social experiences as we're growing up um, shape our minds, uh, how in effect they build distinctively human minds. So it suggests that uh, when we're born, our genetic potential is to have minds quite similar to those of our close relations, but that from the raw genetically inherited materials, we develop some very special ways of thinking, cognitive gadgets. Right, I'm very excited to get into the detail about uh, of, of the book later. So I'd first like to ask you a bit about your background. How did you become interested in psychology? Um, I was, when I was a teenager, I had a boyfriend who'd had some pretty significant mental health problems, problems with depression. And through that, I learned about the work of clinical psychologists. And so I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. And I discovered that to do that, you needed in the UK, where on the whole, your undergraduate study is in one subject, um, that you needed to do an undergraduate degree in psychology. So that was my purpose in studying psychology initially. Mm -hmm. um, but as I approached the end of the three-year degree, um, I realized that I got hooked by a number of research topics, which diverted me from that original ambition. So um, I still have a huge amount of respect for clinical psychology, but I took a different path. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me more about what that path was exactly, where your initial research interests lied? Um, initially, I did work on um, animal cognition, uh, how non-human animals think. Um, I did a kind of an honors project on, um, well, it was more animal behavior than animal thinking. It was how infant rabbits are able to get enough milk uh, in the three minutes that their mothers spend with them each day. Um, so I, I, I started out looking at animal behavior and then had um, an extended period studying animal cognition, uh, hamsters, um, starlings, budgerigars, rats, pigeons, um, and then moved into uh, doing experimental work with humans. That's very interesting. What motivated that shift to, to human focus? Uh, I guess a couple of things. My interests, I mean, one of them quite kind of um, airy and the other one very pragmatic. 
so on the airy side, I realized that I was getting very interested in the broad questions which had drawn me into research, questions about what is distinctive about human minds and how human minds come to have the features that they do. And that to answer that question, sure, you need to know about the minds of other animals. Um, but you also need to be able to address questions of your own about human minds. So that drew me into doing research um, with people. Uh, that was the, the sort of the airy driven by my pressing theoretical questions. Uh, and on the pragmatic side, it is very expensive to do research with animals. Um, and it's very bureaucratic. Um, you know, you, you've got to maintain excellent facilities for them, and that quite rightly involves a good deal of government regulation. Um, you've got to provide good, as it were, hotel accommodation. Um, and that was beginning to become oppressive. Uh, that was taking, it felt more like I was running a small business than engaged in scholarly research. Mm -hmm, that makes sense. Now, interestingly, seeing your background in uh, animal research, I would have assumed that you would be uh, a hardcore cognitive instinct theorist, you know, ma making the, the genetic case for cognition rather than cultural evolution. So, and correct me if I'm wrong in making the assumption that you probably started off in the instinct camp. What prompted the shift into cultural evolution? Mm. Um, I had quite a confusing period um, immediately after my doctorate. So you're quite right. Um, the, the doctorate made me uh, an instinct person, a nativist. Um, then I uh, went to study a few years later in Cambridge in a laboratory that was very interested in learning. Um, they tended to have the opposite set of assumptions. And um, this nearly drove me insane. I used to uh, draft a pie chart at the end of each week. And the pie chart had three kind of slices in it. Um, one of them said conversion. I was just going to get converted from being a person who, you know, believed that characteristics are in the genes to somebody who believed that it's all down to learning. So one possibility was that there would be conversion. Another possibility, which was always very thin, was that I would achieve some kind of synthesis, you know, that, that I would achieve some sort of middle path between extreme nativism and extreme empiricism. Um, and the third possibility was that I would go crazy. And uh, that, that slice of the pie was always very big. Um, and I don't think I was converted. Um, I, I like to think that the theme of the book, the theme of cognitive gadgets, is my attempt to blend these two together, to give the genes their due were to acknowledge the important contribution that they make to human development while also acknowledging the important contribution of learning and especially social learning. 
That's great. So can we, uh, could you please define what you mean by cognitive instinct and cognitive gadget and, and compare the two? Okay, cognitive instincts is a term that I took from uh, Steven Pinker. He described language as an instinct, um, suggesting that we genetically inherit um, in the same way that we genetically inherit, you know, eye color, we genetically inherit a kind of a program for the development of language. And of course, we need experiences, we need to interact with our environments in order for that program to be realized, to make it possible to uh, use and understand language, and of course, to learn the particular sounds of a particular natural language. You need experience for all of that. But the idea was that this is an unfolding process in which, you know, an, an instinct is something which unfolds in the course of development and it kind of uses experience like food or like air. It will develop in a wide range of environments, a wide range of different nutrients. Um, and I wanted to challenge that idea to suggest that the role of experience and especially social interaction um, in human development is a more constructive process. It is building this thing. It's not just allowing a program to unfold. Um, it's constructing a whole new way of thinking. So I chose the, the, the term cognitive gadget to contrast with cognitive instinct. Um, I liked two things about the word gadget. Um, one is that, you know, kitchen gadgets, they can be mighty useful, but they're, they're not big, they're, they're, they're quite small. Um, they're, they're not essential for survival. Um, and I see the distinctive features of human cognition, the ways in which we think and no other animal thinks that way, as a bit like that. They, they are very useful, they're what make us distinctive, but most of the basic stuff that we need for survival, we have in common with other animals. So I felt that this kind of, to some degree, cuts down to size the special things about human cognition. We should be too impressed by the way that our minds work compared with other animals. Um, and I like the sound of the word. The word gadget is one that appeals to me. Um, and it, it seemed to me to have that contrast with instinct, similar kind of sound, but you know, a contrast there. Mm -hmm. So this seems like an interesting twist on the classic nature-nurture debate because it seems like with nature you have basically your your genes, your biology, and with nurture you have the environment around you, but it sort of implies the environment right now. And then culture, when you bring that in, it's it's the environment over time. It's cultural evolution can build on itself. Can, so could you describe that process in a little more detail? That's absolutely right. I mean, the, the idea of cultural evolution um, creates a kind of a third force. So you've got nature, 
you've got nurture and you've got culture where culture has things in common with nature and with nurture, but it's a distinct third force. So it has in common with nurture that cultural inheritance involves learning. I mean, instead of uh, acquiring a characteristic um, through a genetic route, um, we're acquiring them through social interaction, through social learning with other people. Uh, so learning's there, but also it's like nature and unlike nurture in that it is a form of inheritance. It's a way in which, as it were, the wisdom of one generation is passed down to another. And it also means that it's not as it's it's not as fixed as uh, cognitive instincts in that if that cultural knowledge were to be wiped out, we wouldn't. It, it would it would take a long time to rebuild if it were to rebuild at all. It, it, exactly right. Um, you know the, the 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 phrase that I use is agile but fragile. Mm -hmm. So um, you know supporters of cognitive instincts um, famously uh, talk about our Stone Age minds. The idea that the human mind is adapted for a Stone Age environment. Uh, where we were living in relatively small groups and hunting and gathering um, to survive. And they see many of the problems that we have these days as being to do with these Stone Age minds, but you know, trying to cope with a modern world. The cognitive gadgets idea um, says, no, no, our, our minds are adapted to the worlds in which we live or have lived recently, uh, not to the Stone Age past. So in that sense, the way that we think is agile, it can adapt to new social environments and so on. But on the other hand, if there was some terrible disaster, um, say a pandemic, you know, a great deal worse than the one that we have experienced, which uh, wiped out civilization, then the cognitive instinct view says that, well, still each new baby that was born would have within it genetically the seeds of language, the seeds of understanding the minds of others or of um, remembering episodically, remembering specific events that have happened to me that all of those, the potential for all of those things is in the genes and it would spring up again with each newborn baby. Whereas the cognitive gadgets view suggests that, you know, that is not inevitable, that those faculties, language, mind reading or theory of mind as it's sometimes called episodic memory, are products of cultural evolution and that cultural evolution may not take the same course after a major catastrophe that it has taken up to this point. Mm -hmm. That Stone Age mind hypothesis or Stone Age brain hypothesis and the idea of potential for these cognitive gadgets to re-emerge is definitely something I'd like to return to, but I think first it would be useful to flesh out some ideas of what cognitive gadgets are to give some specific examples. So the first one that you used in the book, which I really liked, is the example of 
reading or literacy because that's it's clear that that is a relatively recent uh, recent phenomena in in human history and it's something that we can be taught we can be that seems shaped through cultural evolution but also that we're not genetically programmed to be able to read that's exactly right i mean i think nearly everybody agrees that um uh, reading hasn't been around long enough for us to evolve by genetic means special processes that help us to read. So instead, um, parts of the brain that are, for example, genetically specialized to distinguish small objects one from another, those are repurposed in the course of childhood development. Those parts of the brain are repurposed in the course of childhood development and used instead to distinguish you know, letters and words one from another. So literacy depends on a whole elaborate system which is constructed in the course of childhood. So it, the example of literacy is a great kind of proof of principle that adults can have specialist ways of thinking, specialist neural systems that are not programmed in the genes and that are important and that are pretty well universal in human populations. I think at the last estimate, 80% of humans are now literate. So it's a great demonstration of that. It's, there's another feature of um, some cognitive gadgets, which is absent in reading, which is that reading is deliberately taught. And that may not be typical of cognitive gadgets. So others like the capacity to, um, uh, as it's sometimes called, read minds or to ascribe mental states to oneself and others. Um, the, the, you know, to guess what somebody else is thinking and feeling and to explain their behavior in those terms. That capacity um, is not explicitly taught. I mean, it's learned by children um, through particularly conversations that they have with adults of their culture. But typically the adults don't see themselves as training the kids to read minds the way that instructors, literacy instructors, do see themselves as training kids to read. Mm -hmm. And would most nativists agree with this idea that uh, literacy is in fact a cognitive gadget that emerges out of maybe an innate capacity for language? Or would they also argue that even within us, we have the capacity to, to learn to read, whatever that would mean? Um, I, I don't know of anyone who claims that there are, uh, that we genetically inherit specialist mechanisms for reading beyond genetically inheriting specialist mechanisms for speaking and understanding spoken language. What, what some people do instead, I mean, for example, Stan DeHaan has done 
great work on reading in the brain. And what he emphasizes is that uh, what he calls neural recycling, that you know, parts of the brain which do have um, biological functions, they've been favored by natural selection operating on genes for particular functions like distinguishing little objects one from another, that those are repurposed or recycled for reading. And I'm, I'm sure that's true. What's not clear to me is what the alternative is. It seems to me that in a sense, all genetic evolution and cultural evolution of the brain and mind um, sort of has to be a recycling operation. Evolution makes use of the way things are now and kind of cobbles them together and uh, connects them up in new ways to make new things. Um, that's the typical pattern. I don't think that, I don't think the evidence that brain mechanisms are recycled for reading uh, distinguishes between the two possibilities, that the recycling is done by cultural evolution or by genetic evolution. It could be done by either. And in your book, you use this term starter kit or cognitive toolkit to, to describe those specific parts that, uh, whether it's cultural or, or biological evolution might be recycling. Uh, could, you, could you give some, um, um, some more specific examples of what that toolkit might be like? I, I think this is where most of the interesting debate is on the evolution of human minds. Um, it's like everybody suggests what I call following Uta Frith, a starter kit. But theorists differ in what, how big the pieces of kit or equipment are in the starter kit. So some people think that, you know, the, the, the child starts with programs for the development of whole big cognitive processes like language. Um, whereas I think that what we start with, what, what differs between humans and say chimpanzee minds at birth as a result of genetic inheritance are quite small things. So we are, for example, much more socially tolerant um, uh, Sarah Hurdy uses this wonderful example. She says, you know, think about people um, getting onto a plane ready for a flight and they're really packed into this plane. And when you first get onto a flight, you feel pretty uncomfortable. You feel like everybody's a little close together, but everyone's being very polite to everybody else and trying to just take the space that they do. And she says, you know, imagine a bunch of chimpanzees getting on a plane under those conditions. She said that there, there would be blood running down the aisle within minutes. They just wouldn't put up with that degree of proximity and constraint. Um, so I think one thing that genetic evolution has done in the course of human evolution, since we split off, um, from our common ancestor with chimpanzees has just made us much more tolerant of having conspecifics, other members of my, our species nearby. Now that's a, that's a small thing to dial up, but it means that juvenile humans 
get much more opportunity to learn from others than juvenile chimpanzees do because you know we're able to get close to and to watch for extended periods a wide range of adults it's not only our mothers that will put up with us being nearby um, we're allowed to watch lots of people so that makes a that kind of opens a floodgate of information that we can get from others there's all sorry carry on <laughs> oh um that that ability of of social tolerance to to foster social learning makes perfect sense to me but it, it does seem like a controversial claim to to say that uh the the mind of a newborn chimp is only subtly different from a newborn human because you could imagine taking a chimp and attempting to raise it as a human and you would only get so far uh you, you would um but i think there's there's two kinds of factors responsible for that. Um, one is that the changes that genetic evolution has made to our minds, um, although I claim it has not installed programs for the development of language and mind reading and imitation, so it hasn't done that, but it's still made some quite big facilitating changes. So uh, not only does the chimp not have the social motivation um, or the social tolerance, uh, it also doesn't have the same processing capacity as we do. So I think, you know, in our starter kit, we've also got um, higher working memory capacity. We've got stronger inhibitory control. We can kind of keep track of more pieces of information at one time. So the, the chimpanzee that was raised in a human home would lack those advantages, but also crucially would lack the peripheral adaptations for speaking. Um, there's no doubt that evolution has changed the larynx and you know the whole vocal apparatus, but that's different from changing the mind to make the mind ready for language. It's like the throat is ready for language rather than the mind. I see. So that brings up this distinction of whether cognitive instincts are merely, are, are how we think or just what we think or whether cultural evolution can change uh, how we think as opposed to just what we think. And it seems like uh, most nativists might argue that it's clear that cultural evolution can have a pr profound effect on what we think, but they might resort to how we think being genetically programmed. What do you have to say about that? Um, my, my suggestion is squarely that it changes how we think. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. The, the claim that culture can influence what we think is, is uncontroversial. I mean, who could challenge it? People of different cultures definitely, you know, use languages with different words in them, um, have different beliefs about uh, the right way to behave in social situations, about the origins of humanity, um, about, you know, the, the invisible, intangible world out there. I mean, the, the, 
I don't think any nativist could deny the facts of ethnography, the beautiful diversity of human cultures. Um, but they would say that's that's just the content. That's just uh, what I call the grist, and that the mills of the mind, the ways of thinking, are universal across cultures. That's the idea that I'm challenging. I'm saying that the mills of the mind, the ways of thinking, um, vary across cultures as a consequence of cultural evolution. In your book, you presented four case studies. You presented selective social learning, imitation, mind reading, and language. And the first three, you made a strong case for being cognitive gadgets, being culturally evolved products. And language, you said you weren't sure. So I'd, I'd definitely like to return to language, but could we could we go over these, these first three cognitive gadgets, uh, briefly make your case for, for how uh, cultural evolution can change not only what we think in terms of imitation, mind reading, selective social learning, but how we think? Okay, um, let's start with imitation. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, I think other animals and um, very young children, when they look at the actions of others, it's a bit like um, looking at uh, a bicycle moving along the street um, or uh, looking at uh, a, a tree blowing in the wind. It's some dynamic events in the environment. There's no special connection with the viewer. The viewer is just watching. Um, the evidence suggests that as one acquires the capacity to imitate, there is a transformation so that body movements, watching body movements becomes radically different from watching a tree blow in the wind or a bicycle move along the street, in that as you watch the body movements, your own body begins to, as it were, twitch and resonate with the actions that you are performing, that, that you are observing. Um, and you can choose to, as it were, allow that resonance to come out and to overtly do the action that you're observing. Um, or you can just have this kind of sub-threshold uh, twitching and resonating um, in sympathy with what it is that you're observing. But that is a radically different way of processing important events in your environment. So it's not just that you've learned a new thing like, hmm, if, if I want to get on well with somebody, then I should do what they do in conversation. You know, there's some, some lovely studies showing that put two people in conversation and if one of them is a confederate who you've told to pull their ear every now and again or to bob their foot or whatever, um, and they do that with, you know, fairly, fairly frequently, then the other person in the conversation will start doing the same thing. And they may be completely unaware that they're doing that. Um, but the more of that goes on, the more of that imitation goes on, 
um, the better the person will rank this conversation as having been afterwards. Um, now, you, inheriting grist would be, you know, learning that it's a good idea to copy another person in conversation, then that person will like you, the conversation will go well or whatever. That would be learning some specific belief or fact um, through social interaction. Maybe somebody tells you about this. Whereas learning through social interaction, something which completely changes the way that your body responds to the sight of body movement is what I'm calling learning a new mill. It completely changes the way you think, not just what you think. So you, you mentioned uh, some, some research that newborns, uh, contrary to, to popular or old beliefs, won't imitate beginning at birth, but it's something that they learn over time. Is that correct? Yes, this is, this is great work by Virginia Slaughter's group in Brisbane. I mean, ever since it was first reported in the 1970s that newborn babies would imitate facial expressions, um, tongue protrusion, mouth opening, um, lip pursing, and so on. Ever since that was first reported, um, it, it's been a little controversial. Every now and again, quite often, people have popped up and said, well, you know, we've tried to get this effect in babies and we just, you know, we just can't replicate this result. But it was really difficult to know whether the result was reliable or not, because it's so hard to do experimental work with newborn babies. Mm -hmm. um, but Virginia Slaughter's group a few years ago um, really applied themselves to this problem. I mean, they managed to recruit more than 100 newborn babies. That's a huge sample of newborn babies. Very often these studies are done on a dozen, and that's considered a decent sample. And they tested them for imitation of, I think, nine facial expressions and finger movements, um, you know, at three or four time points shortly after birth. And they found no evidence of imitation. Um, they then looked at all of the data on newborn imitation, which has been published since the 1970s. And they did a meta-analysis looking for whether, you know, the presence or absence of a neonatal imitation effect could be due to any of the methodological factors, which it has been suggested are responsible for variation. I mean, things like, you know, for how long is the baby shown the action? Um, how long do you record the baby's response after it's seen the action. What kind of seat is the baby sitting in? All these things can make a difference when you're working with newborns. And it found, this meta-analysis found no evidence that the factors which are supposed to be responsible for replication or otherwise are actually responsible. Instead, it just found there are certain labs which are getting the effect and there are others that aren't. And it found some evidence of failure to report negative results. It found some statistical evidence that there's probably studies being done. Um, they don't get neonatal imitation and then they don't bother to publish. So overall, the picture there suggests that yeah, newborns can't imitate, they can't imitate, um, you know, people, children, 
can't imitate until they've had the opportunity to learn to do so. Mm -hmm. So if we're not born with the ability to imitate, we do have to learn it at some point. And from what I remember in your book, you made the case that this was due to reinforcement learning. Is that correct? Um, certainly due to learning. I don't think or um, learning. that babies need to be rewarded uh, for this learning to happen. So I think one of the principal ways in which babies learn to imitate is by being imitated. Um, I think probably most people have had the experience. You, you, you lean over a crib and, you know, you're delighted by, you know, if the baby's awake and it's, it's um, smiling and it's doing other things with its face, you tend to copy the baby. I mean, you, you tend to use your mature capacity for imitation to imitate the baby. Um, and it's not what you intend, but in fact, in doing that, you are enabling the baby to learn to imitate. So the baby through your imitating face is seeing what the movements of its face, it can feel its face moving. And it's now experiencing a correlation between the feel of its own face moving and the sight of your face. So it's getting this bi-directional association, this feeling, that sight, so that next time it sees something like that, there will be this activation of the same facial muscle movement. The adult intending to teach the baby to imitate and without the baby understanding that this looks like that from a third party perspective, without either of those things happening, the baby is learning to imitate through social interaction. So if, if imitation itself isn't uh, there at birth, is this ability to, to make associations between, well, let's say the, the baby's own movements and it's what's, what's happening around it, is that one of the core pieces of the starter kit that you mentioned? Absolutely. Um, that's, I think, the capacity for associative learning uh, which is present in a broad range of vertebrate animals and even invertebrates like snails and bees and so on, all have this capacity for associative learning. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's what made Pavlov's dogs salivate at the sound of a bell when the sound of the bell had co-occurred with the presentation of food. Um, so it's definitely part of the human starter kit, the way that it's part of the starter kit for a wide range of other animals. But I think the evidence suggests that in humans, there's been a quantitative expansion of the capacity for associative learning. We can learn more associations per unit time, and we can link them to particular contexts. So we can appreciate that, you know, these two events go together in this kind of context, in an environment that smells of lemons, and they don't go together in another environment which doesn't smell of lemons. And that contextual control of associative learning, I think also makes us very efficient social learners. It seems like this associative learning capacity is the bridge between um, our, our genetic 
innate capacities and cultural evolution, because it seems like we need to have that capacity for associative learning. But then once we can start to make associations, we can form maybe associations about associations, which can build on itself and, and produce cultural learning. I, I think associative learning is an important bridge. Um, I would only hesitate because um, it seems to me that, that things like enhanced social tolerance and um, our tendency from birth, the human tendency from birth to attend to faces and voices are also very important parts of the brew. Um, so I think something which needs to be, which is very tempting in research on the origins of human cognition is to look for some kind of magic ingredient. You're doing something more subtle, which is you're looking for a really important bridge, as it were, between genetic evolution and cultural evolution. And I think you're right that associative learning is an important bridge. But I think the, the, the story of the evolution, of human evolution in general, especially the evolution of the human mind, is always multifactorial. You know, there's always a number of things which have contributed. Mm -hmm. That makes perfect sense. So language is a very interesting uh, case study here because it seems like language is associative at its core. So it's... It, it seems to depend on how you might define language, because you could imagine that uh, if, if human language or culture was wiped out completely, there's the question of would language spontaneously reemerge? And it seems like any individual might make symbolic associations in their mind, which you could argue would resemble language, or once those could be communicated, and agreed upon that this symbol uh, is represents this particular representation that might be a form of language. So, and then once that's established, it could culturally build on itself. So, it it's it seems like it it kind of has to be both. It language might have to spontaneously originate in an individual, but then as soon as that happens, if it can be shared. It will, uh, it will be driven by cultural evolution. Um, yes, I think nobody would contest that the particular natural language that uh, a person speaks, English, Erdu, whatever, um, uh, those languages in that sense have to be um, influenced by culture, have to be learned through social interaction with others. Um, I, I don't think there's any inevitability about the capacity for associative learning being the only genetically inherited foundation for language. Um, I mean, yes, that the reference feature of language, this noise stands for that object, um, seems to require 
only associative learning, but syntax, the fact that, you know, the order of the noises affects the meaning of the utterance. Um, it's no straightforward kind of associative learning, which is involved in syntax, the importance of order in language. Um, I mean, you, you, you pointed out quite rightly that in the book, I write in a very different way about selective social learning, imitation, mind reading, than I do about language. Um, that, that represents something which I think is really important, which is that um, a kind of humility. I mean, you know, language has, is a very complex topic. It's not one that I personally have researched. I've researched the other, um, you know, over, over many years, those other three topics. With language, I came to it as a kind of an outsider. And yes, I immersed myself in that literature. And my sense after reading all the incredibly clever work that other people have done is that the, the, the idea that language, um, that there is not a genetically inherited program for the development of syntax, understanding of order in language, that that's now a very plausible hypothesis, that the evidence is, is consistent with that. But it, it still seems to me to be, you know, a balance of evidence issue. Um, it, it's, it's not yet clear. Right, I, I, I certainly agree with you there. So um, the, the concept of universal grammar, Chomsky's concept of universal grammar, is that something that you believe is unlikely to be the case or, or do you believe that it's likely that we've developed this universal grammar but that it was culturally evolved? Um. I think the term universal grammar has become code for genetically inherited capacity to encode and decode language sequences. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I don't think it would make, it would kind of do violence to the term universal grammar to suggest that it's out there, but it's culturally evolved rather than genetically evolved. Um, I don't think people in this field would, would, would say that. Um, I, I, so nor would I, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, that makes sense. So if it's, it seems that you, you would like to have an easy explanation. And when I say you, I really mean I, I would like to have an easy explanation of if we could imagine a blank slated humanity, um, what would spontaneously reemerge might be genetic and what was lost would likely be cultural knowledge or cultural forms of thinking. But also given enough time, it seems like evolution might again converge on any, really any cognitive gadget that might be uh, advantageous. So, so for example, even if language is purely uh, a cognitive gadget, if evolution were to produce something 
like language again in humanity 2.0, if you will, would that itself be some some type of um, I wouldn't want to call it instinct, but but do you see what I'm getting at there? Something like a culturally evolved product that is prone to being evolved again and again in intelligent enough species. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like the way you're you're thinking. I'm gonna I'm gonna edge away from language because it really isn't my my specialist um, topic, but I hope I'm taking the spirit of what you say to the case of mind reading. So it seems to me that um, you know, if, if there was some calamity and as it were, civilization disappeared, the babies born immediately afterwards would still have this social tolerance and social motivation, attention to faces, supercharged capacity for associative learning and inhibition and so on. So they're in a much better position than extant chimpanzees, for example, to evolve new cognitive gadgets. You're saying, you know, what would be the resemblance between these new ones and the old ones? Well, I think they would have the same broad functions. Having a subtle, sophisticated means of communication is tremendously advantageous. So something language-like is going to appear. Also, given that these babies would still have the specializations of the vocal tract and so on, this could be a vocal language. It wouldn't necessarily be a sign language, for example. Um, they, they can make a, a wide range of sounds. They can distinguish a wide range of sounds. So it seems likely that the sophisticated means of communication um, would be a vocal form of communication. Uh, would the rules which insofar as there is, if not universal grammar, then certain grammatical rules which were common across languages, would they be common again in this new world, version 2.0? It would depend on whether they're common because they're efficient or whether they're common because of historical contingency. Um, if the former, then yes, you'd expect them to become common again in, in the new version. The same with, with something like mind reading. I mean, some gadgets for predicting and explaining what other agents are going to do are likely to emerge because the capacity to do that is tremendously helpful in a social species where you need to cooperate to survive. You need a means of predicting and explaining the behavior of others. But the method of doing that could be very different. I think I've lost you, Adam. I still, I still hear and see you. Um, can you ah. I still hear you, but your image is frozen. Uh oh. Well, well, I hope actually now I don't. Shall I just plow on? Um, sure. Yeah. Okay, just to finish that thought about mind reading. I mean, so it, it might be that um, in version two, um, that it's much more common to predict and explain behavior in a way that 
Some cultures do now, but it's it's not so common in in contemporary world, which is not with reference to um, thoughts and feelings and beliefs and what somebody's social status is, um, what their social role is, and the circumstances in which they find themselves. So in version two, that might become you know the normal way across cultures of predicting and explaining behavior rather than the way which is very popular now, at least in um, American, European, Anglo cultures, which is in terms of thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. And do you believe that this process might connect to genetic assimilation at some point? So, so one example of this might be if for some reason we culturally come to a belief that a certain characteristic, maybe it's a certain eye color or some some trait uh, start to have more children and over time this trait becomes more common. So the question would be, is that a product of genetic evolution because it's this genetic trait that gets passed down or cultural evolution because it was, it was cultural in origin? I think genetic assimilation of cognitive gadgets is um, entirely plausible hypothesis. Um, it could happen. Uh, so I think it's an empirical question. And in the case of imitation, uh, my group did experiments to try to find signs of genetic assimilation. So, you know, it could be that humans originally acquired the capacity to copy body movements through cultural learning. It was a cognitive gadget. And then it proved so useful that individuals who learned to imitate fast were more biologically successful, they had more children, than those who learned to imitate more slowly. So that gradually, gradually, um, the capacity to imitate required less and less learning. It got faster and faster. In effect, it became inherited in the genes. It's a plausible hypothesis, but if it had happened, then you would expect that now um, we would learn matching relationships between observed and executed actions faster than we would learn non-matching relationships. So, you know, we would learn to open our hand when we see a hand opening faster than we would learn to close our hand when we see a hand opening. So that was the prediction from the genetic assimilation hypothesis. And we did not find evidence in support of that prediction. We found that learning arbitrary relationships between seen and performed actions was just as fast as learning matching relations. So in that case, we found no evidence of genetic assimilation. And that's the approach that I would like to see for other cognitive gadgets. It's a plausible hypothesis that they've been genetically assimilated, but we need experiments testing whether the hypothesis is correct. Mm -hmm. I think this is a great place to bring back in the Stone Age brain hypothesis. So first, could you could you go over again why you, you view it as less plausible? And and I would I would especially ask to you to uh, give some examples, if you could, of where are our more modern brain has prevailed or, or specific specific ways that uh, our our brains have 
have changed in more recent years? Um, well, in a way, we've, we've already talked about the leading example, which is reading. Mm -hmm. um, our brains um, radically reconfigure when we learn to read, and that's only been happening for about the last 6,000 years. Um, I mean, I think the, the Stone Age mind, the Stone Age mind claim is not based on, um, it. It could be based on looking at the way the world is now and saying, we've got lots of problems. Um, if our, okay, here, I'm, I'm gonna play the nativist and try to attack the cognitive gadgets idea and say, look, if you were right and our minds were as agile as you claim, um, the world would have no problems. Everyone would be living in harmony with everybody else. Uh, well, no, I mean, you know, we would be able to do many of the things we can do. We would be able to cope with virtual reality, for example. We would be able to read. We would be able to live in cities um, without tearing each other apart. Um, but there are certain, as it were, logical problems um, with, uh, a large number of people cooperating with one another. Um, logical problems which are analyzed by economists in game theory, um, which have been analyzed by lawyers and philosophers for centuries. And there's no reason to suppose that cultural evolution would be any better than biological evolution at producing optimal solutions to those problems. So neither the instinct view nor the gadget view is going to predict, you know, utopian life. And I would say that there's, there's manifest signs that our minds adapt. It's not just things like reading. It is what very different lives we lead than our Stone Age ancestors. I've only heard of a few examples in, in, in popular media of the, the Stone Age mind hypothesis. One idea is our, um, you know, obesity is becoming uh, a leading epidemic and we are, we very much enjoy sugars and fats because these are our high calorie foods. And, and the way I've heard the argument phrased is something like, we can't get away from um, these these ancient associations our brain have made with with you know, wanting these these high calorie foods, even though now it's to our detriment. And I'm wondering if if a cognitive gadget view would be able to get around that problem, because the theory might be that we should be able to quickly, within the span of maybe a few generations, be able to make associations between foods that we biologically might like, like the the high fat, high sugar foods, but would would have an easier time staying away from? Um, 
I tend to see our enjoyment of sweetness and fat as being, you know, a bit like the fact that we have five fingers. Um, mm -hmm. No mental change is going to change the fact that we have five fingers. There are mm -hmm. fundamental embodied constraints on what the unaided mind can do. But you could see a Fitbit as a way of dealing with our taste for sweetness. I recently lost 10% of my body weight painlessly by the gamification of weight loss via the Fitbit, you know, recording what it was that I was eating. And by recording it, I was able to adjust the different kinds of nutrients that I was taking in and so on. Um, now, the construction of the Fitbit comes from science. Um, science, is it a cognitive gadget? I mean, I think in a way, the existence of science within a culture embeds in individual minds, distinctive analytic ways of thinking. And those analytic ways of thinking can, among other things, counteract the effects of our taste for sweetness. So, you know, I, I guess I, I'm ultimately, after thinking aloud for a while, going to respond to your interesting example by saying, but we do have a cognitive gadget for coping with our taste for sweetness. It's not installed in every mind yet. So obesity is a problem, but the, the potential is there to overcome this constraint like the constraint of having just five fingers can be overcome by building huge physical machines, which will do things that five fingers could never do. I agree with that. It, it does seem like a good recent example of how our, our thinking might have to evolve contrary to, to our um, genetic predispositions. Um, so I, I'd like to close asking you about both the reception of your cognitive gadgets theory in recent years and future directions for it. Um, any, any specific directions you're planning on taking this? Well, at the moment, I'm involved in two projects. One is um, looking at episodic memory as a cognitive gadget. So I'm joining there with experts on episodic memory. Um, and we're going to do a, a detailed look at that. And the other is looking at um, what has been called norm psychology. So there's been a suggestion that we have an instinct which enables us to pick up on what constitutes socially acceptable behavior and that motivates us to punish people who are not engaging in that socially acceptable behavior. And I'm beginning to comb through the research uh, with young children, with non-human animals, with adults, um, looking at brain activity and well as behavior uh, to consider whether those two things, episodic memory and norm psychology are cognitive gadgets. In terms of reception, it's interesting that my approach has always been quite bottom up to do lots of sifting of evidence, evidence from developmental psychology and comparative, cognitive neuroscience and so on. But the cognitive gadgets idea um, has been taken up 
much more by philosophers than it has by scientists. So I'm, I'm delighted to say that um, philosophers of cognitive science, philosophers of biology, um, it, it's created quite a buzz. Many of them are presenting interesting challenges and developments of the idea. Um, it's been taken up much less by psychologists interested in the evolution of the mind. Um, and I think that may be because it questions a lot of received wisdom. Um, and I would like uh, kind of pushback in terms of no, the evidence shows its instincts rather than gadgets. That's the kind of debate that I would like to see. But very often the response that I get is to turn away, as it were, not to engage at the level of evidence. The second more recent development you mentioned of, of dorm psychology had me thinking, and, and this kind of relates to our earlier point of whether or not specific cognitive gadgets are likely to culturally evolve due to that, due to um, being socially adaptive is this idea that it's, I wonder if norms develop in, in a way that can be predicted through some type of natural selection or cultural selection, but if this, if this might be mistaken for, uh, for, well, just natural selection, since it, it kind of leads to the same maybe inevitable result. Yeah, I, I, I think you, you can't really work backwards from how adaptive something is to whether it's a product of genetic or cultural evolution. I mean, they're both Darwinian processes of selection, which will produce adaptations. So the mere fact that something is an adaptation, it's handy, it does a good job doesn't tell you whether it does a good job by virtue of genetic evolution or, or cultural evolution. In the case of norms, I think there's, there's a lot of people doing interesting work, um, including Joe Henrik at Harvard, showing that the particular norms to which a culture subscribes, uh, the grist, as it were, of norms, is a product of cultural evolution. But they suppose that the ways of thinking that enable us to detect norms um, and that motivate us to punish norm violations and so on, that those ways of thinking are products of genetic evolution. And that's what I'd like to look at more closely. What is the evidence that those normative ways of thinking um, are genetically rather than culturally evolved. I don't have a strong view about that yet. I'm just starting to dig around in the evidence. It could be that norm psychology is, is the exception, that norm psychology is a cognitive instinct and that the other um, topics that we've discussed, that those faculties are cognitive gadgets. Mm -hmm. As you said at the beginning of this chat, it seems like it all boils down to not a matter of whether there's a starter kit or whether there's cultural evolution, but just how big is the influence of each of these? Absolutely. It, it's always going to be nature, nurture, and culture. 
it's a question of what each of the three contributes and how big the contributions are that come from the three sources. Dr. Hayes, I hope we've made a, a good overview of your book, Cognitive Gadgets, and thank you very much for appearing on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Adam.